0: Welcome back to our fourth class in our series on Russia and the Battle of Gog, Magog, found in Ezekiel 38 and 39. I'm Robert Congdon, Director of Congdon Ministries International, and I'll be your teacher for this class that will examine Israel's relationship to Gog and his allies. Now, at the end of our previous session, we touched upon the reason Gog and his allies ...would attack Israel. You see, they had a desire for spoil and prey... ...as Ezekiel chapter 38 tells us in verse 11. Beginning in verse 11. So turn, if you will, to Ezekiel chapter 38... ...and we'll be looking, first of all, at verse 11. Verse 11. And thou shalt say, I will go up to the land of unwalled villages. I will go to them that are at rest, that dwell safely... All of them dwelling without walls and having neither bars nor gates. There are two key terms in this verse that help us to understand the timing of Gog's attack. You see, the phrase unwalled villages is often misunderstood. Many Bible teachers see it as an indication that there will be no defenses at this time and combine it with the dwelling safely and conclude that this would be the time after the antichrist begins the agreement of what they call peace treaty with Israel giving them peace and safety at the start of the tribulation but if we take a closer look at this term and its meaning as it is used elsewhere in the Bible I think it makes it very clear and supports the concept that the battle of Gog Magog will occur between the rapture and the start of the tribulation before this Antichrist covenant. You see, this same phrase is used in Zechariah 2. There the prophet indicates that following the restoration of Jerusalem after the captivity, in the future in fact, undefined future, it will be a greatly enlarged, City, So if you'll turn now to Zechariah chapter 2. Over in Zechariah 2, we're going to look and see what what it really means to be unwalled. I'm going to begin in verse 1. I lifted up mine eyes again and looked, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. Then said I... Whither goest thou, and he said unto me, to measure Jerusalem, to see what is the breadth thereof and what is the length thereof? And behold, the angel that talked with me went forth, and another angel went out to meet him. So what we have here is a measuring of Jerusalem, measuring its size and determining it. And then in verse 4 we read, Run, speak to this young man, saying, Jerusalem, "...shall be inhabited as towns without walls. For the multitude of men and cattle therein, for I, saith the Lord, will be unto her a wall of fire round about her, and will be the glory in the midst of her." Without walls in this verse is the very same Hebrew word unwalled back in Ezekiel 38. Notice now carefully here, the multitude of men and cattle, they are combined with the measuring. God does this to indicate to us this massive increase in this future city of Jerusalem. It's going to be much bigger with many men, many cattle. In this verse, being unwalled is not a reflection of defense, but rather indicates the lack of restraints to this expansion and growth. In other words, there are no walls that are going to hinder as more cattle, more men come into Jerusalem. You could almost picture the walls bulging if they were still there. No, there aren't going to be walls. For it will be greatly enlarged, extending much beyond the boundaries of the ancient walls before the captivity. Now, if we consider the massive development in Israel since 1948. Today's Israel is truly a land of unwalled cities in the true biblical sense. Further, it is a land dwelling safely. For the Hebrew word safely means to dwell in a condition of confidence. Confidence in what? In their own defenses. Again, this too speaks of today's Israel for today they are very confident in the Israeli Defense Force and their Iron Dome and missile system that protects them, as we discussed in our previous class. Therefore, they're not going to fear a siege or an attack by land. Once again, we see it is feasible for the Battle of Gog Magog to occur in our day. Recognizing Israel's growth and with it, its military might in our day, we're given a hint, if you will, as to why God would choose just such a time to bring Gog upon them. You see, God will use this battle to destroy Israel's self confidence and cause them to turn to Him instead of themselves. Now, if we'll continue in verse 12 of Ezekiel 38 we're going to see that Gog and his allies will come and notice verse 12 to take a spoil and to take a prey to turn thine hand upon the desolate places that are now inhabited and upon the people that are gathered out of the nations which have gotten cattle and goods that dwell in the land dwell in the land notice carefully here it's a very similar reference to that in Zechariah because it refers to the cattle in the land. It's a certain commonality here. So what we have here is that the Gog and his allies, they're going to come up for spoil and prey. Thus, after the church age, believers are removed at the catching up of the church or the rapture, Gog will be lured into believing that the opportunity is right to come against this tiny nation and to seek spoil and prey. We've already introduced some aspects of the term spoil and prey in our previous class, but there are significant additional implications that we should consider in order to gain a better understanding of the multiple motives for Gog and his allies to come against Israel. Motives that are very viable and feasible today. The terms spoil and prey are uniquely phrased in the hebrew literally if we look at this phrase in the hebrew the phrase is to take spoil spoil and to take pray pray now you see any time a word is repeated in hebrew it indicates the intensive thus the phrase means when it says spoil spoil pray pray no i'm not stuttering those those are in there twice in the phrase Actually, we can smooth out the phrase. As a Hebrew would have understood it at Ezekiel's day, they would understand that it means to take great spoil, to take great prey. Notice the emphasis. These are great, large amounts. When I looked at this phrase, I found myself wondering, hmm, why had God had chosen to use Ezekiel to write the two different words, spoil and prey? You see, I thought they were probably about the same idea. After consulting many commentaries and writings, I discovered that no one answered the question. (laughs) How typical when you try to look up in a commentary to find something that's a bit of a question, they skip it over. Therefore, I'm going to suggest a possible answer that is based on observations of Israel's foes that are named in Ezekiel in other words, the context will tell us the difference between spoil and prey. As we've already learned, spoil is always used in the single context of simple context of plunder, contained in war. In other words, it's the goods that are conquered and taken by the victors. Thus, some members of the alliance of Gog will attack Israel purely for the material gain that Israel will offer. Pray, however, suggests a slightly different aspect or motive. It has a, if you will, theological inference, suggesting one success in gaining materially from an enemy in order to demonstrate your God's, with a little g, blessing or curse upon that foe. Hence, I have concluded that spoil indicates the material gains from a successful invasion, while prey indicates an ideological or theological gain of victory of one god, little g, over another god of little g, with the prey being the physical evidence of that superiority. As we will see when we identify the nations involved in this battle, the Prey element, the theological element of the Gog Magog coalition indicates the Islamic nation's desire to demonstrate Allah's superiority over the God of Israel, the God of the Bible, by plundering Israel and destroying the Jewish people. While some of the nations will attack Israel for economic gain without question, others will attack for ideological and theological Uh, victory now if you'll look into verse 13 as Ezekiel continues to relate this look where he says art thou come to take a spoil hast thou gathered thy company to take a prey why to carry away silver and gold to take away cattle and goods to take a great spoil These spoils are primarily economic in nature. But notice verse 16, where God explains why he has brought Gog's army down upon Israel for prey. So we skip down to verse 16. And thou shalt come up against my people of Israel as a cloud to cover the land. It shall be in the latter days. And notice now, I will bring thee against Israel my land that or in other words the heathen may know me when I shall be sanctified or set apart or honored in thee O God before their eyes you see that God's purpose is working with these with Gog and his allies those nations This verse clearly indicates that God's purpose in doing this is to demonstrate that he is the one and only God who is worthy of worship by defeating Gog and his allies. Thus, in defeat, these heathen armies will recognize that the true God has defeated their false God in the land of God's chosen people. Gog and his coalition will become the prey, (laughs) not the people of Israel. This is just as he did in the Old Testament days. God will openly defeat the enemies of Israel. This is another reason why I believe that the church has been removed before Gog-Magog battle takes place. For you see, God is focusing on Israel and openly defending her before the eyes of the entire world. Now let us consider how the term spoil may be connected with our hypothesis that Gog is Russia. What could possibly be the motive for this former Soviet nation to attack Israel in these modern times? Well, a very recent statement in Fox News' opinion piece suggests an answer for us. Instead, of, and I'm quoting now, instead of being an embattled and isolated outpost of Western democracy, Israel looks like the Middle East's new economic colossus. Get that? Colossus. Now, what could possibly raise Israel to this economic colossus State? Actually, the answer is quite simple: oil and natural gas. You see, it's now estimated that the land of Israel holds almost 250 billion barrels of oil shale reserves. Now, just for a moment, compare that with Saudi Arabia. Israel has 250 billion barrels. This compares with Saudi Arabia's 260 billion million barrels. Only 10 billion barrels of reserve difference. Furthermore, Fox News went on to declare, thanks to the industrial technology miracle known as fracking, Israel is about to become the new energy Mecca of the Middle East and there's very little its Arab neighbors can do to stop it. End quote. Now, while many countries would be envious of this potential wealth, why would Russia be particularly eager to obtain it? You see, today, 42% of the European Union's oil and 25% of its natural gas come from Russia via the Ukrainian pipelines. Now, with the recent upheavals in the Ukraine and ongoing upheavals and economic sanctions that have come against Russia, potentially the result could be to close the pipelines between Russia and the European Union. The European Union, incidentally, has begun to look elsewhere for oil and natural gas. The two most likely sources for the European Union are the United States, and you guessed it, Israel. As Israel's export capability increases, Russia's needed revenue from energy is going to decline, depleting the financial resources Putin needs in order to restore Russia to its former greatness and to restore what he wants to do is restore Mother Russia back to the days of the Tsar. This loss would be an addition now to the strain upon Russia as a result in the drop of the value of oil in the last couple of years. You see, invading Israel and taking over its energy resources would strengthen Russia's monopoly as the provider of the EU's energy needs. I believe God will use Israel's economic prosperity and resources to entice Gog to attack Israel and bring about Gog and his coalition's judgment. In Ezekiel 38, look at verse 4. And I will turn thee back and put hooks into thy jaws. I will bring thee forth and all thine army, horses, and horsemen, all of them clothed with all sorts of armor, even a great company with bucklers, shields, all of them handling swords. That's Ezekiel chapter 38, verse 4. This enticement could well be part of the general stage setting in preparation for the battle of Ezekiel 38 and 39. As I've taught in the previous sessions, I believe that the battle of Gog-Magog will take place prior to the start of tribulation, but after the rapture. Therefore, the rapture, the battle, the start of the tribulation. While the rapture can occur at any moment, verse 7 suggests an admonition for Gog and his allies in the days ahead. So if we look at verse 7, speaking to Gog, Be thou prepared and prepare for thyself, thou and all thy company that are assembled unto thee. And then it says, Be thou a guard unto them, in verse 7. Be thou a guard unto them. You see, in this verse, God is actually expressing a form of a taunt toward Gog. In other words, Better be prepared, Gog. Now, Charles Feinberg an uh, excellent Bible commentator noted that this is the, and I quote, consummate and telling irony, for God to tell Gog to be fully prepared for the encounter. End quote. It's it's folly to believe that anyone can battle against God, God, and win, for no one can be adequately prepared for such a battle. God's taunt is used to expose Gog's great self-assurance and hauntiness. Isn't it interesting? God is working with the self-confidence of Israel, and we'll deal with that. And here he's trying to deal with the self-assuredness and this hauntiness of Gog and his allies as enemies of God's nation, Israel. You see, God is doing this as an attempt to humble and destroy pride. This is not a mere statement that Gog is to prepare, for in the Hebrew, again, we have a repetitive use of words prepare, indicating emphasis. You see, God is telling Gog to prepare to the utmost for this battle, because we know the end. Gog will still be beat. From this, we can tell that this was not going to be a minor skirmish or an isolated attack on Israel but a major war requiring the gathering of men and massive amount of equipments for the battle. And its outcome, notice, will be a defining point in military history of the world. So let us now consider this military aspect of the battle. Prior to the battle, Gog will begin his preparations of its armies and allies' military forces. You see, perhaps the current fighting in Syria against the ISIS serves as a test ground for the future buildup. God instructs Gog as the leader of this amassed force to guard them. In verse 7 of Ezekiel 38, we ra- read that they are to be prepared and prepare for thyself, thou and all thy company that are assembled unto thee. Be thou a guard unto them. That is, God is to be careful, to carefully, if you will, watch over them or guard them or kind of hover over them until the time of the attack. Perhaps this explains the close relationship with Iran and Syria in the current strife. In verse 4, we are shown an array of weapons that will be amassed. Notice here in verse 4, in the middle of the verse... All thine army, horses, horsemen, all of them clothed with all sorts of armor, even a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords. Now we've discussed and will discuss shortly about the fact about these weapons. Would they use them in modern times? But in the meanwhile, notice Ezekiel's description often has been ridiculed and reinterpreted. In order to make it seem feasible in our day of modern weapons. For what army would fight while riding horses today? And this is where I want to focus in on that aspect of it. I find it very interesting that in a recent series of news articles, a new form of horse, in quotes, has appeared in our military. This is a robotic cross between a goat and a pantomime horse, as the military describes it. It's designed to carry 400 pounds of payload, travel 20 miles without refueling. It's recently been tested over in the state of Hawaii. It is called the Legged Squad Support System, or LS3. It's being tested by the U.S. Marines and is foreseen now as the future means of helping the foot Soldier, Notice how robotics are becoming such a key element to the military. And so this robotic horse is being tested. Perhaps Ezekiel's horses are robotic. Uh, Or perhaps there's another literal possibility. You see, in May of 2014, in a scene very reminiscent of a 16th century funeral, and I quote the report, Cossacks in crimson coats. Now, by the way, Cossacks, don't forget, they are descendants from the Scythians, therefore the land of Magog. So I quote, Cossacks in crimson coats carrying leather whips and sabers, that's swords, streamed after a riderless horse, end quote, at a local chieftain's funeral in a Russian coastal city where? On the Black Sea. That's Scythia. Partly as a result of the revolution and their loyalty to the czars, the Cossacks, who are notoriously skillful horseback-riding warriors of Russia, they were officially disbanded on June 1, 1918. But during World War II, now remember, World War II was a time of mechanized warfare. But during World War II, when Hitler was in power, they were reinstated and reestablished as a horseback troops to help fight against Hitler. Now, the reason was actually very simple. They needed the Cossacks' unique military might. There was a statement issued in nineteen. 19- 41 that observed, and again, I'm quoting, they have gotten back the uniform, the Cossacks, the horse, the saber, the dagger. They have been restored to a place of honor in Soviet society. You see that? They were dishonored at the end of the revolution because they were obviously with the Tsar in World War I. But in World War II, when the need was there, They were brought back to this place of honor. The Cossacks were described at that time as a rising tide. Historically speaking now, the Cossacks are renowned for their strong Russian nationalism toward Mother Russia and their zeal to support Mother Russia's expansionism when under the Tsars. I hope you're starting to put this together. For Putin, you see, the Cossack is, and I quote, a kind of mascot, unquote, that represents the desire for a return to a more conservative, nationalistic ideology. In other words, Mother Russia first. One media report notes that, and I'm quoting now, Putin relies on officialdom, the church, and the security services to govern this fits well with Cossack patriotism, close quote." Now it's no accident that Putin was photographed riding bare-chested on a Cossack horse, where in Siberia. Have you seen that picture? Most people have. It not only portrayed Putin as a real he-man, but it was symbolic and this is why I calls it his mascot of the Cossacks. And they're tremendous power as warriors for Russia and especially under a tsardom Russia and that's the goal where Putin's trying to take Russia now it's believed that the Cossack horse was first domesticated where on the Pontek Caspian steppe again the land of the Scythians during the 1930s Breeders from that part of the world developed an even sturdier strain of the famous Kurzik horse. This is a breed that significantly has been known to be able to cope with notice any type of terrain that could be encountered. You see, this really is an all terrain vehicle, the Cossack Horse. Their performance was praised by one observer of the time as being the best means to travel, and I'm quoting this, the terrain lying between the land of Gog and the land of God. Close quote. Very interesting comment. No, this was not a Christian source. The Cossack soldiers themselves now, who trace their roots to southern Russia and the Ukraine, are famous for their military might. The modern Russian army has had, notice this, a Cossack regiment on horseback since 2005. We're talking modern times. Understandably, you might challenge the literal interpretation of Ezekiel when it comes to the horses being used in the Battle of Gog Magog. But in reply to this, I would quote Anatoly Kasevoy, head of the Ryazan Paratroopers College of Russia, speaking when? In 2013, and I'm quoting him now. It is very difficult to use heavy equipment when carrying out military activities in mountainous or forested areas. Thus, the use of horses is necessary for speed and mobility. End quotes. That's the head of one of the Russian training schools for paratroopers. Using the horse as just an example of how Ezekiel's prophecy could be fulfilled literally as we read it, I conclude that not only horses, but I think also weapons that could be burned for seven years, as indicated in Ezekiel 39, also should be taken literally. You see, always take what you read in the scripture literally unless it clearly states or indicates that it's a, a metaphor or a picture or an attempt to picture something that is, is beyond uh, our basic simple words, usages. In other words, if it clearly is symbolic, we take it as symbolic. We don't reject that. But we take it literally when it's feasible. Having considered the armies preparing for this war, I'd now like to consider the motivation of the nations whose armies are involved, first from an economic viewpoint and then from an ideological viewpoint. The economic viewpoint will help us to better understand the second ideological prey motivation for the invasion once we have identified all the participants ...of the Gog Alliance. We're now going to look at Gog's allies in Ezekiel 38. You see, these names listed in Ezekiel 38... ...as we would read them sound unfamiliar to us... ...but they become very familiar... ...once we identify their geographical locations... Ezekiel identifies Gog's allies in terms of those nations that existed during his day and using many of the names found of the table of nations that are found in Genesis chapter 10. When Ezekiel in chapter 38 verse 2 and chapter 39 verse 1 writes, remember he's writing in the 6th century BC, a time when national boundaries as we know them They didn't exist. So now, if you will, turn again to Ezekiel 38 and look at verse 2. And Ezekiel writing says, Son of man, set thy face against Gog, the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, and prophesy against him. In the latter days, the prince of Meshech and Tubal will organize a military coalition of five nations to attack Israel and to take spoil, as we read about in verse 12 and 13. As already mentioned, Gog, the chief or prince of the people of Meshech and Tubal, is either the human leader or the demonic principality motivating him. Assuming that the demonic angel moves a human leader to attack Israel, we should be able to identify what country and where that man will come from. As we noted in an earlier lesson, based on Ezekiel 38 verse 2 and Genesis 10 verse 2, it appears that Gog could well be a Russian from Moscow who governs the land of Magog or is controlled over the land of Scythia. Most scholars and historians trace Magog's descendants to the ancient Scythians who lived in southern Russia and the nations today that form up the Russian Federation, in addition to parts of Turkey and Iran. Now, in addition to Magog, Ezekiel lists the allies of Gog as Persia, Ethiopia, or Kush, depending on your translation, Libya, Gomar, and Togarma. Now, ancient Persia included that land that today is Iran, but it also included Syria and Iraq, which is very active in our world affairs today. Do not forget that we must remember to consider the lands of Ezekiel's day when we name them in terms of today's borders. Too often I hear speakers, and myself included, that simply equate Persia with Iran, and forget the vast extent of the empire in Ezekiel's day, the time he wrote this and he wrote Persia. Recently, the ties between Russia, Syria, and Iran have become more evident. Uh, During a televised interview on February 5th of 2014, the president of Iran, Hassan Rouhani, commented on Iran's international relations, asserting that there will be a new dynamic in Iranian-Russian relations. The common factors that seem to link Russia and Iran are geography and energy-related. This becomes apparent upon observing their similar strategies, their energy resources, and regional goals. And I would include in those regional goals the dealing with in today's world, ISIS, and dealing with the rebel forces in Syria. Now, it's very easy to see how they might form an alliance against Israel as she becomes a serious economic energy competitor on the world market. In addition, strong Islamic interests in the Caucasus countries within the Russian Federation coincide with the Islamic Iranian leader's ideological desire to destroy Israel. Now, while Russia's motivation for attacking Israel, I believe, would be purely spoil and certainly not have that Islamic element, Iran's is largely ideological to destroy or to take a prey. This is reflected in Brigadier General Hussein Salamai, senior commander of Iran's Revolutionary Guards, he made the following statement, and I quote, Today we can destroy every spot which is under the Zionist regime's control with any volume of power that we want right from here. And that's from Iran. As we've seen in the recent news, Iranian power is growing moving to a nuclear power, and it's all targeting Israel. Now, our next country to identify is Ethiopia, or in some older translations, it's translated as Cush. This is in verse 5. We have Persia, then Ethiopia. Ethiopia is not the Ethiopia of today, but rather the land directly south of Egypt that is known as Sudan Today Sudan is a divided nation, the north and the south. Northern Sudan Sudan is a hardline Islamic nation known for its support of Iraq in the Gulf War. It was divided in 2011. The south would be Christian by majority. Perhaps now Northern Sudan's union with the other nations in the Gog alliance, in part, is a hope to gain allies to defeat the southern Sudan and its Christianity. Military strategy also explains the reason that this nation of Sudan is vital to the coalition. For remember, it is to the south of Israel. It enables Gog to apply a pincer movement against God's tiny nation of Israel. Forces from the north, forces from the south. Sudan is one of the most militant, by the way, militant Islamic nations in our world. And they are extremely anti-Israel. For example, there was a past raid by Israeli's defense force on the Red Sea, where they captured an Iranian ship loaded with missiles, ammunition, and other arms. Perhaps you remember the incident. It was determined that these weapons were to be unloaded in Sudan. Get that? From Iran, shipped to Sudan, and then they were going to be smuggled into Gaza via the Sinai Desert. Hamas in Gaza... Is a major enemy of Israel, and they are to the south. Hamas's senior official, Mahmoud al Zahar, he made the following statement, and I quote The Hamas movement and Iran have taken special measures, and we will see many changes in these relations soon, end quote. Now, this statement came shortly after Hamas renewed its diplomatic relations with Iran the Sudanese connection reflects a growing coalition of Islamic countries being influenced and aided by Iran now joining Sudan from the south is put now as a descendant of ham put founded what is now modern-day Libya and so again, we have this situation that some Bibles will have the word put, some will have updated it to the term Libya. This is a nation that is just west of Egypt in North Africa. We all certainly will remember Libya's past leader, Colonel Muammar Gaddafi, who is a radical Islamic leader of a country with a long history of hatred for Israel following his overthrow by a coalition, Libya has become a struggling nation seeking to reunite that former unity that it once had. It's a very divided land today. History has demonstrated over and over how many internally divided nations, just like Libya, have solved their problems by uniting against a single cause that is dictated or directed, if you will, toward an outside foe in other words we can unite our country if we just focus on this enemy over there Israel would be an excellent target if you will to try to reunite Libya Libya might well find that unity in this alliance against Israel the next coalition member we want to consider in verse 6 is Gomer Now, the descendants of Noah's son Japheth, we read this in Genesis 10, verses 2, and 1 Chronicles 1, verse 5, those sons of Japheth settled in the area of Cappadocia, central and north-central of today's Turkey. The nation of Turkey today is much like the Ukraine, for it shares borders with both Europe and the Middle East. This Islamic nation is divided in loyalties between these two distinct regions. Like the Ukraine, the day will come when it's going to have to choose between them, either Europe or the Muslim world of the Middle East. Over the last several years, there's been a decided drift toward a stronger Islamic ideology and with it a growing movement away from support of Israel. In fact, this movement by the leader of Turkey toward uh, Islam, a much stronger emphasis upon Islamic law, etc., has Europe and the European leadership very concerned and struggling whether they really want to bring Turkey into the European Union or end all negotiations to achieve that. So the Islamic issue is the issue that is slowing down Turkey's entry into Europe. Now, remember also, Turkey is a NATO alliance country, so it is quite a complicated situation right there. But clearly, the trend of the last 6 to 12 months has been stronger Islamic ties and includes involvement or attempts at involvement into Syrian situation. Were the trend to continue, I think it's very easy to see how a portion of Turkey or perhaps a divided Turkey could join the alliance. The final country we need to consider is in verse 6 the house of Tagarma of the North Quarters and all his bands. Ezekiel informs us that the house of Tagarma is a supplier of horses and horsemen and mules back in Ezekiel 27, verse 14. From the ancient historian Herodotus we learn that the house of Tagarma was famous, you guessed it, for horses and mules. Don't rule out horses and mules <laughs> in this battle. Many scholars believe that Tagarma is the ancient city of Tagarma in eastern Turkey. Gog will plan what appears to be a masterful attack on Israel. From multiple fronts. To the north of Israel are the Russian Federation members, the Turks, and the Iranians. To the south are the armies of the Sudan and Libya. To the west is the Mediterranean Sea, and the east is desert. So the forces are coming from the north and the south, and the center of their convergence will be Israel. For Russia to attack Israel requires a solid land base to move its troops. It just can't depend upon the sea, especially on the fact that it's got to come between Greece and Turkey, if you will, or parts of Turkey but close to Greece. Therefore, it needs a solid land mass. This explains the need for Syria, Turkey, and Iran from a Russian military standpoint. It's interesting to note that while Magog's allies are all predominantly Islamic nations, none of them, none of them are Arab nations. You'll recall that the Arab nations are all descendants of Abraham, therefore, so to speak, cousins to the Israelis. But the nations that are going to attack Israel are only Arab are only Islamic nations without Arab ties. God will lure them to Israel so that he might judge these nations for their treatment of Israel both now and in the past. Jordan, an Arab nation, and Egypt, a non-Arab nation, will not join in and are not even mentioned, possibly because both have treaties with Israel today and they will honor them in the future. The Islamic faith is rapidly spreading, though, through Russia, at least in the Caucasus nations today. So that could also influence this. And I quote, A large number of Islamic religious clerics are winning Russian converts from atheism and other religions to Islam. See, the problem is, once Russia abandoned the atheistic standpoint... It has opened the doors, yes, to Christianity, we praise the Lord for that, but has regained the Russian Orthodox Church in great power in the country, but in the Caucasus nations, Islam has been able to move in quickly. Recognizing these Islamic trends now in Russia, I could see how this force is united against God and his people Israel, and Putin wouldn't have the resistance of the Caucasus Islamic countries. Remember, this isn't a family feud like that between the Arabs and the Jews. This is an Islamic army that bears no historic family relationships to the Israelis. Their goal is simply spoil and pray and to destroy ideologically and to prove Islam superior to the God of the Bible. Thank you for joining me in this class. Please join me again for our next class on Russia and the Battle of Gog Magog. That class will be webcast on November 22nd at 8 p.m. Eastern Time and available 24-7 on demand beginning on November 23rd. If you have questions, Be sure to contact us at our website. Go to our website, www.congdonministries.org, for more information. We'll be soon making some announcements about additional classes that will be available on the internet on our channel. Now, this is exciting news because we're going to bring in some additional teachers so we can offer more classes to help you understand God's word and God's plan for history. So be sure to keep close to our website to keep up as we give out announcements about new classes coming in addition to my teaching. Now, may the Lord bless you mightily and we'll see you again either here or in the air.
1: Sure.